Hello and welcome to the Diversifying and Decolonising the University podcast. I'm Chris Lloyd. This podcast is put together by staff and students at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK and it explores diversifying and decolonising within higher education and looks at those terms in different contexts, subject areas and disciplines. In today's episode, we listen to Hilary Emmett talk to Alex Reginder Mason about his book chapter, Decolonisation and the Desk, which appears in the forthcoming book, The Affects of Pedagogy in Literary Studies, which is edited by me and Hilary and will be published by Rutledge this year. Alex is an early career researcher and project manager of the Centre for Equity and Inclusion at the University of Sheffield, and Hilary is an associate professor of American Studies at the University of East Anglia. Hi Alex, it's so lovely to meet you virtually after spending so much time with your rich and thoughtful chapter in our collection. I've been rereading the chapter in preparation for this podcast, and I was really struck by your point that decolonisation is increasingly becoming an empty buzzword in universities. Now, this podcast and this project is, of course, about diversification and decolonisation. So I wanted to start by asking, what do these terms mean to you and how are you using them in your work context? And do you have any tips for us about ensuring that these frameworks are used in meaningful rather than empty ways? Uh, hi, Larry. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, what a what a packed full first question that is. Um, f- for me, uh, diversification is quite specifically talking about um, who is in the room. So talking about um, bringing in people from marginalised backgrounds in this context within mainstream educational spaces. But it's not about the conditions of the room, which is to paraphrase um, my colleague, Dr. Muna Abdi, which is something that decolonization is trying to get to. Um, it's Decolonization is much more specifically about identifying and then addressing systems of white dominance um, within a, a variation of context, you know, here, higher education. And then after identifying them, seeking ways to materially transform them. So it's much more of a confrontation with power, racialized power, um, in my view. So whilst diversification is important, it's important to bring in different people and different perspectives. I think that it doesn't go as far as something like um, decolonization goes in terms of actually um, thinking about wrestling with the manifestation and expression of power. So that to me is quite the quite a crucial difference between the two. And then in terms of how do you uh, adopt them usefully within the higher education context, for me, I think it's about being deliberate when you're using those specific terms and frameworks. I think when I talked about it being a buzzword in my chapter, it was more highlighting the fact that institutions use those words interchangeably and they use really to gesture towards something quite vague in terms of resistance towards racism, um, which amounts then to very little. Uh, Those terms are quite specific. They have specific frameworks attached to them. They have specific purposes. I think once they're used for those specific purposes, they can become productive. But on an institutional level, that rarely happens. They're just used as synonyms for one another. And when you lose that specificity, they, they don't really lead to much material impact. So that's really what I try to um, advise, I suppose, when working with students and working with other people interested in this, just to to fully understand your terms and how you're utilising them and to do that deliberately. Yeah, I love that. And I think it really 
comes out in your work, this concern with materiality, the actual conditions in the room, right down to, as you call it, you know, the infrastructure of the university. And the, I mean, the infrastructure that you focus on in your wonderful essay is the very, you know, the very basic idea of the desk. So I was wondering if you could actually just summarise for those who have not had a chance to read your your chapter, um, a quick quick summary of your argument in decolonization and the desk and how you see the desk is absolutely central to this idea of materializing decolonization and kind of materializing resistance I guess in the classroom yeah so in in a chapter I'm just I'm trying to draw attention to the desk um, as a significant object in the classroom uh, one that has an active impact on our effective experiences of the classroom And I'm trying to link that to broader campaigns around decolonization and architecture that we've seen over the the last few years, um, starting perhaps most in the mainstream with the Road to Must Fall campaign, um, but also kind of continued in in different contexts elsewhere in the UK and, and around the world, really. And the point that was being made by those movements was that architecture is not a passive backdrop upon which social relations um, happen and through which power manifests. They are active um, participants and contributors to those relations, to those uh, manifestations of power. And that there is a racialized context for that as well. So it leads to different racialized uh, experiences of whatever context you're talking about. For me, the conversation has very much centered around, uh, for obvious reasons, overtly racialized. Um, aspects of architecture so things like statues things like portraits of colonizers whereas I'm interested in thinking about what other aspects of architecture contribute to this system of racial power and for me the desk is such a formative aspect of the educational space it has a real uh, material impact it carries a real symbolic weight so it's something that we have to wrestle with and much like those decolonial um, theorists and activists as, who are part of the Road to Must Fall campaign. It's not to argue that we should only now be interested in the desk and trying to make the desk um, the focal point for all racial-based activism. That's not it at all. It's to argue that these aspects of architecture play into this broader system um, of white supremacy and that we need to consider it if we want to consider white supremacy in its totality when we're thinking about the higher education context. So within all of that, I was in this chapter trying to explore how this happens within the classroom. So how does the desk impact people um, from different racialized backgrounds and how does it affect them either as students or as teachers? And it's my view that it, it has a quite profound impact in a variety of ways, both in terms of who gets to be in that classroom to begin with, Um, but also thinking about how people relate to one another within that classroom and also how the content, how the ideas, how the values are presented and consumed in that classroom. So really just trying to wrestle then with how the desk is part of this broader conversation around white supremacy, around decolonial theory and, and things like that. Thanks, Alex. I think, I mean, what for me is so compelling about your essay, um, and you've touched on this in your response, is that you offer actually a really quite personal reflection on what it is to be both student and teacher in that context. Um, And I was wondering if you'd feel 
comfortable just returning to, to that essay and speaking a little bit about what we might keep in mind as to how our students might be feeling, um, you know, in in that classroom context, but also speak a little bit about, you know, your really, I think your really thoughtful meditation on what it means to be standing behind the desk, standing behind the lectern, what it means to come out from behind the lectern in that kind of institutional context. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I wrote this chapter as I was just finishing my my PhD um, thesis. And so I didn't have a lot of teaching experience at the time to refer to. So I was really thinking about my first days as a teacher and how that related really to what I was researching at the time. I was researching architecture. I was thinking about these these core aspects of um, university architecture and I went into teaching in my final year. So I was already somewhat aware of the things I might engage with and the things that I might have to negotiate. But it was only really when I was in the space that I could truly feel it. And it struck me on my very first day when I went to stand in front of the classroom and I suppose instigate our initial conversation about race, that I felt bound to the desk that had been set up in front of the classroom where lecturers, teachers tend to stand. And given that I had been researching this for a few years at that point, I really wanted to interrogate why that was and where that was coming from. And doing some reading around that, looking at um, scholars like George Yancey and Bell Hooks, I realised that this played into a much wider experience that uh, academics of colour have been talking about for some time. And certainly those involved in anti-racist practice have been talking about. And I recognized that it was something to do with my racialized experience to some extent. This need to uh, feel validated in the space potentially came from feeling somewhat marginal within the wider institution. And the idea that if I remove myself from the desk, that the the legitimacy that that desk gave me, it meant that if I was to move away from it, I couldn't rely upon that. So I was just left with my own self. And as a young, inexperienced teacher still working on their PhD, it felt like there was actually a more equal sense of power, that power was up for grabs between myself and the students. And that's a scary thing, I think, when you're, when you're first teaching. Um, and, the, and the fact that I was coming in as um, an early careers academic of colour as well, the sense that actually the, my different racialization to the majority of my class might mean that I was even more vulnerable to critique or to um, being not taken seriously. And the more I read, the more I realised that actually not only people of colour, but specifically women of colour have talked about this as a, as a common experience of feeling like they're constantly being undermined in that classroom space. And they've had to figure out how to not rely on the, on the desk as a form of support and comfort and actually to be brave and try to come out and teach regardless of the vulnerabilities and try and negotiate the space in a different way. So I was learning in practice as I was writing and researching. So it was quite an interesting experience for me in that regard. Thanks. It's really, um, really sensitive and vulnerable, if I can say that, um, to, to kind of share share your experiences in that way. So thank you. So, yeah, so kind of speaking of not being able to be in the room, um, Chris and I have have kind of discussed at length, and we touch on this in our introduction to the FX book, um, the strangeness of drawing together a collection that was actually commissioned before the pandemic, but written 
and kind of edited during the pandemic, um, but is now coming out as we're kind of nominally returning to normal, right? Even though we still don't really know what that looks like. Um, and I was struck that you you bring that kind of idea into conversation with, again, with, with this concern with the materiality of the classroom. And you talk at the end of your essay about how we need to kind of take a decolonial approach to the kitchen counter, to the dining room table, um, as these different spaces were turned into desks during the pandemic um, and the way the kind of the domestic and the institutional collapsed and, you know, into each other and, and in, you know, in ways that were, were really quite tricky, I think, for, for many people. So the pandemic, I guess what I'm getting at is opened up new questions about structural inequality and the need to address them. And I was just wondering if you'd had a chance to think further about this idea of redefining the desk and, and what how we might rethink our post-pandemic pedagogy um, as a result. Well, I think I was always conscious that when writing that chapter that I was writing from a restricted context that in talking about the classroom experience, no matter how I may have framed the desk or tried to subvert um, how the desk was utilised whilst teaching, whilst bound to the classroom, those ideas are always going to be restricted. So I was always thinking about that. I think what COVID did was highlight that it's possible to, on a very widespread structural level, to completely alter the assemblage of an educational space. The idea that the domestic space is one where knowledge is produced is not, is not a new one. And, and I think that's also what I was getting at at the end of that chapter. Part of, I think, decolonial work is to highlight that knowledge is being produced way beyond the higher education space. And particularly by people who have been marginalised by institutions, they are generating and have been generating loads of knowledge between themselves, um, perhaps within a domestic space or just elsewhere. Uh, Fred Moten and Stefan Ohani are are people that I often come back to. They talk about these alternative spaces. Um, The porch fronts, the churches um, are things that they allude to, but I think the domestic space would be another one. Um, So that's been happening. But I think what COVID did was maybe bring that to the minds of the majority, perhaps, because we were all pretty much being bound to our homes and in doing so, so suddenly, not many of us had the setup to, to go to a, a normal kind of office space. We were using our kitchen tables, we were using um, our cushions, our pillows even, depending what um, resources that we had at home. And that, to me, in terms of thinking about the desk, shows that we can kind of employ a variety of objects to be the site of where knowledge is produced. And whilst in the context of COVID, that was actually quite a harrowing experience for many because people weren't prepared, they weren't set up. It was a burden for parents, for carers, for the students themselves. I think looking beyond COVID, there is perhaps something to be drawn from that and to think, well, actually, it's possible to reorganise our educational spaces, to adopt different spatial positionings amongst one another, to use different objects as sort of our our baseline, our our background for uh, producing knowledge together. And there may be some potential in that. I think probably the clearest way of thinking that through is the idea now that we're quite used to hybrid working. And what does it mean now that we cannot see each other's desk spaces? Typically, we are looking at people's faces and their upper bodies. In some regards, I think that can be a positive thing in that my argument in the chapter is that the desk can be a site of oppression and a site of 
regulation and discipline in, in some regards when used in its traditional form. So the idea that perhaps its its power is lessened within an online context could actually feel quite freeing and allow for alternative relations to emerge. But at the same time, it leads to other other issues being in that online space. It's, it's impossible to be tactile, really, not at least in the same way, through a computer screen. And I was part of a decolonial workshop last week, actually, where we were talking about the fact that when you're on a Zoom call, you can mute yourself, you can turn off your screen. Whilst that can have value for some people, it can make them feel safer, more comfortable. And when we're talking in a racial context, that could be quite important. And one of those positive ways in which we reimagine an educational space, in another regard, it means you can't, can't necessarily feel that intimacy, that connection with other people, which I think is integral to a really critical and caring educational space, the sort of space we want to cultivate, I suppose, ideally. And I think that's, that's, and that's where the online space becomes quite tricky and complicated. It has, yes, it's a new way of working, but there are issues that need to be negotiated, I suppose, still. So that's where my head's been at, I think, in terms of going beyond that immediate moment of COVID and thinking about the long-term view going forward. What different um, spaces can we take up? What other objects are going to become our desks um, figuratively and literally? And how does that play out in this hybrid dynamic? Um, yeah, so there's loads to think about. I have not resolved it myself. I think still trying to get uh, come to terms with what that feels like, really, before I can truly unpack it and think about it more critically but certainly effectively it does feel like something different is happening now since that that covid first came yeah i thought look i think there's so much to think about um in 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 what you've just um kind of put out there in in that response and again i don't have answers to this either but just thinking about the theorists that you've cited you know fred moten um as an african-american theorist um and made me think of the barbershop and the way so we teach um the barbershop chronicles at, at uea so thinking about perhaps actually even if we draw students' attention to the materiality of where we're producing knowledge, we can provide literary texts that engage with those questions of space and knowledge and identity formation um, and culture, perhaps. And so my mind's like really kind of buzzing about, okay, how can we how can we decolonize our curriculum in that respect and and bring those questions to our students in literary form, um, given that that's our, you know, kind of our shared discipline here. Um, and I wonder too how we might bring indigenous knowledges, um, which is something that's been a you know a concern for myself and, and several members of, of my department um, for a long time, how we might, I guess, use the pandemic cracking open some of these questions to bring more texts and bring more context into our teaching for, for students. So um, I made several notes while you, while you were speaking. All right, I think we have time for one more question. Alex, in your original abstract for our FX volume, you proposed an exciting reading of the album cover um, of The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. And you wrote, in an effort to broaden and further democratise the sort of scholarship usually utilised in such theoretical work, I will use the album cover of Lauren Hill's seminal, seminal album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, which features a carving of her face into a school desk, to challenge current prevalian Foucauldian takes on the desk and with the help of black feminist theory and testimony, discuss the specific experiences of black women with the object. And so kind of in conclusion, we just wanted to ask, are you still thinking about that visual and musical world of black feminism? 
and its relationship to the classroom? And is this something that you'd be willing to talk a little bit about in these final minutes of the podcast? Absolutely. I was desperate to include it, but um, the word count um, restraints has always meant that um, I, I just couldn't go there. But absolutely, that's that's um, an album I, I'm always reflecting on. Uh, in my thesis, I relied not only on literature and film, but also hip hop. And, and the Lauren Hill album was was one that I used um, quite a lot through my work. I think when I was working initially on my thesis, I was trying to think about what what hip hop albums out there engaged with the educational experience in, in quite a critical way, which immediately led me to Lauren Hill's album. And it took me a while to realize actually that the front cover is in fact a desk. Um, I, I was I was way into my my desk chapter before I I made that realization. And when I did, it really helped me I think to unpack some of the uh, different ways in which you can approach the desk. So the writings on the desk that I had engaged with had talked about it as um, a site of discipline. So principally in the school context, not so much in the university context thinking about the way that it's organized in rows in in classroom, um, a way that keeps uh, students separate from one another, uh, able to be seen by the teacher who stands at the front of the room. Um, that's kind of that Foucauldian context, that, that that person who's able to oversee everything that's happening and therefore aiming to, able to quell any signs of resistance, trying to ensure that regulation is happening at all time. And in my reading of the Lauren Hill's album cover, I was taken initially by the lines that are at times fairly imperceptible, but certainly there um, that run across the album. So most visibly, it's the um, the line at the top of the, the album. It's kind of a space where you would put your pen or your pencil. But if you look at the desk in, in, in close detail, there are lines pretty much all the way across. And to me, there was, there was a suggestion um, of that kind of regulatory aspect of the desk. And I think that was particularly brought to the fore because... On top of all of that is this image of Lauren Hill herself, which has effectively been carved into the desk, but it's it's quite a sprawling picture. Um, and it's striking, for example, that her hair um, almost uh, entirely covers the top part of the album cover um, and is going in all different directions, which I think is quite significant considering the ways in which, you know, projecting perhaps the context I was coming from is, is significant in that, the way black women are ostracized for their hairstyles in educational spaces and how that's been used as a site of discipline again. To me, the idea that going against these very orderly lines on the album cover, Lauren Hill's image was sprawling and wasn't following a particular direction. It seemed to be subverting that sort of disciplinary feature of the desk. To me, that that kind of enshrined the desk in, in, almost in its totality, both showing at once the way in which it can be used to discipline, but also the way you could subvert that. And the idea that it was through her image as a musician, as an art, as a hip hop artist. And, and for me coming from the arts, it, it struck me that there's something there about the, how the arts, how the arts and humanities can be used to subvert those more regulatory processes. And if you listen to her actual album, the, the skits that um, are, featured after each song they are set within a classroom context but they're talking about love and care and things like that and to me that was again um, another manifestation of how Lauren Hill's trying to subvert the, the way in which schools try and discipline individuals it was about bringing people together talking about love um, that to me was 
a radical politics, really, that was coming from the album. The fact that Lauren Hill herself is said to be absent from those conversations after the first gear, it struck me that, again, there's something there about those alternative educational spaces, that the space that she's supposed to be assuming isn't within the, the strict educational context or the educational side. It's somewhere else, through her music, perhaps, um, but certainly not within the school side. And I thought that, again, was interesting in terms of everything else I was thinking about. So to me, it just offered a bit of a framework, really, to explore those other ideas in a bit more detail um, and to think about the lineage in hip hop, about how that's presented an alternative um, platform mechanism for dealing with racism and other forms of oppression. So that's where I got to, really, with that particular album. And it did lay a foundation for me to think about more about my personal experiences and what I was um, going through at, at my own university. Um, so yeah, it was it was a good um, foundational block for me. Again, so much food for thought there. Thank you so much, Alex. Well, that's all the questions that, that we had for you. Um, I've really, really enjoyed having the chance to discuss your work with you after having a chance to read it over the past couple of years. And thanks so much to Chris for bringing us together and, and giving us a chance to have a chat. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks to both of you.